Jonaso. Just a very brief reminder of a point made by the Buddha, which I think is ever so true, universally true. And that is, in terms of qualities of the heart, such as loving kindness, compassion, he commented that there are two ways of cultivating them, arousing them. And one is by, for example, in terms of loving kindness. How? By behaving in a very loving, friendly, affectionate way. Just through out, from outside in. Behave in such a way, then slowly it kind of trickles in, right? And another way is you might go off in solitude and cultivate, cultivate from inside and let it gradually flow out. Or you can do both. So, as I would, as I would encourage you as you anticipate maintaining your practice as you go wherever you're going from here, to do so in a spirit of loving-kindness for yourself. Uh, that is, it's just settling in as you just settle your body, speech, and mind in its natural state and then do whatever you do. That all of this is an expression of your caring, of your affection, of your kindness for yourself, for those around you. And that in that spirit, then even if you uh, are just practicing mindfulness of breathing, that can be an act of loving-kindness and that actually might help you cultivate and realize greater loving-kindness, yeah? Because you're doing so in a very gentle, loving way. And in that regard, in terms of choosing the meditations, so now we have a wide-open one, choosing the meditations. As always, being the balance walla that I am, uh, it's a balance between two themes, and that is one, in terms of meditative practice, like so many other things, it's very important there be some continuity, some regularity, some discipline that, you know, when it don't, we don't just kind of do it whenever we feel like it, but we don't quite feel like it, oh, well, I'll just eat more ice cream, you know? Uh, that it's not way off in the wishy-washy kind of touchy-feely, I'll just do it whenever I feel like it kind of approach, which is obviously very wimpy. Nobody achieves enlightenment that way. But equally, just as nobody ever achieves enlightenment that way, nobody ever goose-steps goose their way to enlightenment either. You know, just hot, 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 hot. Absolute discipline, rigid, alles in Ordnung, you know. How do we say that in English? Everything absolutely in its own order. You know, this it's got to be some balance in between the two. So having some structure, some balance, some orderliness to it, continuity to it, discipline, all that has a place. But then finding that very friendly middle ground between the two. Right? It's between science and art, where if you really don't feel like doing a certain practice, like it could be, there could be at least one of you that right now doesn't quite feel like right in the mood or really not drawn to engaging in one of the four measurables. Well, you can imagine if you really don't want to do it, or maybe it's you know, at back home and it's 9 o'clock and you think, well, I really should do my, one of the four measurables now, and you just don't feel like it, you can imagine how beneficial that's going to be. I mean, you know, I've got to. I've got to. Not going to work. So just striking a balance. Striking a balance. Doing what's good for the heart, good for the mind. So let's do that now as we have one session. Uh, overall, these afternoons, as you very well know by now, are oriented towards the four measurables. But if kind of the spirit strikes you, I think the way I'd like to practice four measurables would be in a very loving way, oh, go into awareness of awareness or mindfulness of breathing. That too is a loving-kindness practice if that's your motivation. So it's good, yeah? So we just try to strike that balance between structure and fluidity. Yeah? Good. Let's have one silent practice.
Nasu. Whether for these four measurables or for a wide variety of other meditations or simply endeavors, questions, challenges that we face in daily life. Um, it's a little two-step that I found ever so frequently. It's very helpful. I certainly did not make it up. And that is, first of all, whatever the task may be, it could be, oh, I think a story I've often told is not a very interesting story, but grappling with a very difficult problem in advanced mechanics when I was studying physics. And first giving it my best shot, I mean understanding the nature of the problem and applying my mind to it, and then releasing it, then just completely releasing it, and just settling. It could be with mindfulness of breathing, it could be settling the mind, awareness of awareness, but just kind of with openness, but a quietness, a receptivity, and then lo and behold, out of that can come unexpected and very helpful things. And it's a gift. It's a gift, and we don't need to interpret, oh, it's from God, it's from Buddha nature, it's from, we don't need to do it and interpret it at all, it just happens. But I find it happens a lot. Okay? So it's kind of nice that there's a role. Yes, I'll be right with you, Patricia. But there's a role for active striving, active striving. But in my readings in Dzogchen, ever so often when you're actually in bona fide Dzogchen practice itself, then the themes that come out are tsurme, without effort, chajelwa, with devoid of action, relaxed, loose. And so the whole other side there of just then let it be. And allow yourself to be receptive and let good things flow in. Patricia, what's on your mind? I thought I didn't get it correctly. Yeah. That uh, you say first you think on the problem, yeah. then you start meditating, you, you just let the problem, or you whatever the see problem. the solution and then... Yeah, whatever the problem is, recognize it fully, think about it, maybe you can just solve it immediately. Good. But if it, it could be an interpersonal issue, it could be a business issue, it could be a big life decision issue, it could be cultivating a loving-kindness issue, it could be all kinds of things, wide range of things. But just a, a strategy that you might experiment with, probably, I'm sure many of you have already, I have a lot for many, many years now, is first kind of give it your best shot, and that is really apply your mind to it. Use your intelligence, creativity, imagination, problem-solving ability, and all of that, whatever it may be, visualization, all of that. But then at some point, then release it. Release it. And just, whether it's awareness of awareness, it could be mindfulness of breathing, but release it and just let your awareness come, become quiet, receptive, open, relaxed. Relaxed, still, and clear. And then see what comes as a free dividend. We can, we can be religious about it and call it blessing, or we can just be phenomenal, how would you say, just experiential about it and say, well, watch what happens. And maybe something very beneficial will arise. I found that to be the case many, many times. Basically, every time I think almost, you know, no, I think without exception, every time I've offered comments before a morning session or an afternoon session, it's always come out of that. I, have, I, don't, I don't do any study here at all. I don't, do, I don't ever study, prepare. I mean, I might check out the internet for one issue, check it out in three minutes, done. But that's because something came out of the meditation that said, oh, you can check this out on the internet. You know? But otherwise, so if you found anything beneficial in the you know, discussions, talks, before the morning session, before the afternoon session, 
all of that is coming from that strategy. Okay? So, and you can judge for yourself. If it was not useful for you, then you say, I, I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine by me. Okay, let's check the Daily Mail. <coughs> Okay, so not so many today. Good. After the Buddha's enlightenment, when he when he, uh, he set the set into motion the wheel of Dharma with his five disciples, and these became arhats. The Pali Canon reads, and then there were six arhats in the world. Did the five disciples achieve the same level of realization as the Buddha? Absolutely not. There's no question about it, and it's not debatable. Uh, certainly not. There, that is, a Buddha is called an arhat. A Buddha is called an arhat for a very simple reason is the Buddha is completely free of mental afflictions and will never again be thrown by the power of karma and klesha into any future rebirth. That is an arhat. No more, no less. So if you don't believe that, that's fine. But then there's no reason to call yourself a Buddhist because that would be like, again, like being a Freudian and say, I don't believe in the subconscious or being a Darwinian and saying, but I don't believe in natural selection. That's fine. Don't believe in natural selection, but don't call yourself a Darwinian. It's silly. It doesn't mean anything. So, that's it. So there were six arhats in the world at that time. The Buddha was one of them. But by all accounts, the Pali Canon, Theravada interpretation, everybody, and from the Buddha's own lips, he was an arhat, but he was a Buddha. And that is, while he was equally free of mental afflictions, now just straight Pali Canon, Theravada interpretation, he was equally free of mental afflictions, uh, all schools, so just common ground. I don't want to go into sectarian debates, but all the schools of Buddhism say that where he was just almost unimaginably surpassed the other arhats is in the positive qualities, the, 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 the scope, the depth of his compassion, his loving kindness, the scope of his wisdom. Uh, for the, and it's really this phenomenological vision, the scope, the vast the expanse of his awareness arhats didn't have. His powers also his siddhis, or paranormal abilities. Even Moggallanaputta, or Malgayayanaputra in Sanskrit, who is above all the other arhats among the Buddha's disciples, even he couldn't match the extraordinary powers or abilities that the Buddha had. So they were all arhats, but the Buddha was in a class by himself. Did the five, yeah, so that was that. That's easy. And again, there's no debate on that. Uh, that's what the Buddhist tradition says. All schools agree on that one. Do you know what are the meaning of the red color in the Mahayana monks? Okay, I pre I hope, I'm hoping you mean their, their robes and not their complexion. <laughs> and, the ye and the yellow or red, yellow or orange in the Theravada monks, does it mean something about renunciation? Uh, not the color per se. From what I know of the Savastavadan Vinaya, uh, there were three colors, three colors that the Buddha um, kind of endorsed or said were fine for the monks to wear. Yellow, red, and blue, I think, was the third color. Pretty sure blue. I don't think it's ever been used, but as I recall, there were three colors, not just the red and the, the orange, the maroon, the yellow, the saffron. Um, unless I'm mistaken, three. But, so what's, what's up with that? Uh, in classical India, so I've been told, um, certain colors had a certain prestige. Like, in, for example, in Thailand, um, purple. Purple is a royal color. You don't mess around with purple. Okay? And... In ancient India, saffron uh, was considered to be really ordinary, just base, not one of the really luxury colors. And so being the lowest, 
saffron, and I think it was also very easy, it was cheap. It was cheap to get, that was really important. That the monks are just not wearing expensive garments, they're wearing just ordinary cloth with the cheapest dye available. And so that's where the saffron came from. I've seen a lot of Theravada monks. Some of them wear robes almost as dark as Pelsang's. Uh, some of the Burmese monks, really, really deep, uh, kind of a deep rust red, but they're still Theravada. Others are really bright yellow. I've lived in Sri Lanka, some really bright yellow, definitely orange, and then classic saffron. So that's the spread for the Theravada. And then, of course, Buddhism went from India to Tibet. And the story I've heard here, and it sounds very plausible to me, is since red, the various shades of red, burgundy, deep rust, and so forth, and all of those you'll find among ter uh, Tibetan monks. Sometimes it's more like a dark rust, sometimes really quite red, sometimes really burgundy. Uh, you'll find that whole spread. And the, what I've heard from there is that in Tibet, the saffron color was quite rare, expensive, and therefore wasn't the kind of color that monks should have to spend a lot of money trying to find. You know, order me some dye from India, I need to get some robes. You know, not in the mood of the monastic tradition. Whereas there was a mineral, and I'm sure there still is a mineral in Tibet, uh, that was very easily used as a dye, and that's basically the burgundy. And so that, that became the most common uh, color for the monks' robes in Tibet, because it was very easy, it was cheap, it was a good dye, and, so that's how, how, and it was also uh, acknowledged by the Buddha, that's perfectly good. Okay? So, but um, yellow, just generally speaking, yellow, golden, uh, does symbolize ethics, symbolizes various things, but the, the ground of ethics. Uh, red symbolizes various things, compassion, power, and so forth. But the, the color for the monastic robes is really more prosaic, cheap. <laughs> it's cheap. Okay? Okay, let's see. What? Is there a murmuring back there? <laughs> all, all, everything's okay? Is there a... No, no, okay, no, no, <laughs> no, it's, it's a long one, but it's not yours. Jacob is off the hook. Okay. So, okay, this is a good point. So here are questions about, first of all, the four measurables. How to imagine enemies? I think, I, I usually think of past enemies, but I don't think they're trying to harm me now. You've already taken care of them, huh? <laughs> I became a Buddhist after I dealt with my enemies. <laughs> they're all crushed. <laughs> Well, to, to first of all, look at the word enemy. To look at the word enemy. Of course, it can be in, interpreted in different, different ways. An enemy may be a person that I despise, I hate, I want to destroy, I loathe, I want to conquer, kill, mutilate. That could be an enemy. That's one definition. Um, I don't think that's the primary definition. When the word da, or da, which is enemy in Tibetan, uh, when it's used, when this term crops up in the Buddhist context, I don't think it's really referring primarily to that. I wouldn't say it excludes that. I don't think it's referring to that primarily. An enemy, on the contrary, is a person who wishes you harm, doesn't wish you any happiness, maybe feels malice, cruelty, disgust, contempt, whatever, but looks down on you. Okay? And maybe has harmed you in the past, maybe will at least take no delight if you ever experience any joy or success you know, like that. So this person who thinks ill of you, maybe just looks down on you or what have you, that's the, that's the real enemy. So if I could jump to another tradition entirely, uh, when Jesus says, love your enemies, love your enemies, I find it difficult to believe that he, he's saying, you know those people you really can't stand? Love them. Because as soon as you stop disliking them, they're no longer your enemies, in which case you never love your enemies. 
So I suspect that when Jesus said, love your enemies, and of course he's talking about unconditional love, that he too is referring to people who don't like you. And can you love them even while they don't love you? And they may even wish you injury and so forth. So I think this is, I mention this because I think this is a universal among the great contemplative, great spiritual traditions of the world. We can't control whether other people like us, whether they wish us ill or well. We can't control that. But what we can control, what we can shape, is our own attitude, our way of viewing, attending to others. And so how to view enemies. If you have any enemies, it's just anybody who thinks ill of you, like that. Then attend to them. If they treated you badly in the past, then you may recall that. If you th feel they may wish to do so in the present or in the future, you may bear that in mind. But then you always come back to, well, there is the behavior. And I, and I come back to uh, my lovely metaphor of whacking Maria with my iPhone. And he should, she could get angry at the iPhone, the bicep, me, or at anger. You know, just tracing. And then finally, but when you go to anger, then you say, well, why do you get angry? Delusion. And why were you deluded? Well, I was deluded before. Yeah, why? Because I was deluded before. Yeah, but why? Deluded before. The but kind of stops there. There isn't something else outside of delusion that makes this delusion, like God or karma or destiny or something like that. It's just delusion is really the root of samsara. And so again, I'm going to jump traditions. So there, according to the New Testament, the one that has made its way to the present day, there's Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they know not what they do. Because they are ignorant. Because they are deluded. And he didn't give anything beyond that. He just said, that's, that's enough. That's enough. And so, as we tend to enemies, then we may attend to, acknowledge, be aware of their behavior. Also, very likely, the mental afflictions that dominate or arouse such behavior. But then recognize that even this, the strongest mental afflictions always trace back to delusion. And nobody wakes up on a bright, sunny day with a clear, radiantly, stable, wondrously wise mind and, des and decides, I think I'm going to be deluded today. You know, it never happens. Delusion is not volitional. Delusion is no more volitional than Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's, or smallpox. It happens. It happens. And then we can only have compassion. I mean, the, the, the metaphor of a doctor, a really loving, compassionate, wise doctor, doing his rounds, let's say it's a man, doing his rounds in a hospital. And imagine over here he's got a person who just came in with a bit of a cold, wanted to make sure it wasn't bronchitis. But just, but just diagnosed, in fact, it's just a cold, you know? And then down here is a person with um, a broken leg. And then over here is a person with uh, really severe nausea and some major, major stomach problems. Here's a person with cancer. Here's a person with delirium and so forth. Um, it's hard even to, um, well, but I said a good doctor. And, and I think most doctors are really quite good, right? They got into the profession to be helpful. Well, a good doctor will look at the person with the little sniffles and a person who is maybe uh, criminally insane and a person with polio and a person who has a terrible, terrible... I, I saw a woman like this, whole body covered with warts, big, big warts, whole body. It was. I saw her in the public and I can imagine, oh, a lot of mental suffering there. But you can imagine a doctor, he would just... He wouldn't say, oh, I won't see the warty person, so I'll just hang out with the person with a little sniffle, you know, because I like people who don't get very ill. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's you know, unimaginable. And so if we can simply be like a good doctor, that we attend to everyone, whether their mental afflictions are, are, are severe or whether they're mild, but bearing in mind all of those men mental afflictions come and go. So we attend to enemies in that way. 
And if you don't have anyone, in fact, we had a person in the spring retreat. Uh, it was a younger person, I have to say. But he said, I tried to think of enemies and I couldn't think of any. <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember exactly what I said, but maybe wait a while. <laughs> Give it some time. <laughs> uh, I mean, even Jesus had enemies. Buddha had enemies. Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. Enemies. So it doesn't matter who you are. Enemies can arise. But if you don't have any, then you just get to skip that bracket. Okay? Keep your eye and keep your eyes open. Where would we place the lamas? Just in the blessing group or also in the blessed one? Um, yeah. Uh, there's a bit of difference between Theravada and Mahayana here, so I'm just going to go Mahayana. When you're cultivating loving kindness or compassion, um, the Mahayana tradition, especially Vajrayana, says don't include, don't include your lama there. You know? It's because it, it's a little bit out of sync with where your guru yoga, your attitude towards the lama is going to go. So uh, you may wish, and this is certainly part of the prayers, wish for the lama's long life, for the lama's good health. But to look upon your own lama and say, may you be free of suffering, free of mental afflictions and so forth, um, it's not bad, but it's just a little bit, maybe that's not the most helpful way to cultivate love and kindness in your own heart, right? Empathetic joy, absolutely. Yeah, taking delight, if you have a good lama, hopefully you have a good lama doing much virtue in the world, then of course take delight in that person's virtue, that person's joy, and so forth. Equanimity, good everywhere. Okay, I'm going to give another person a chance. Oh, Lasso, could I talk about Kandrala? How can someone be an emanation of a deity? How does that happen? Could you explain? Oh, sure. <laughs> Being an emanation of a deity? Um, no, in a way, it's, I mean, I can, give, I can give some words. But to refer first to Kandala, I love speaking about people who have made a very deep impression, very positive, very meaningful impression. Uh, Kandala is a young woman. I think she's, do you think she's 29? Could be. She's, she's certainly around 30. She's not 40 and she's not 20, so she's cl very close to 30. And I had heard of, her for, heard of her for some years. It is a very interesting story, and we're still trying to get this, uh, this film from David Cherniak called Oracle. I uh, haven't succeeded yet, but I'm still hoping. And I think you would enjoy it if we can watch it here. We'll, we'll show it Wednesday night if we can get our hands on it. Um, she appears in that film. Um, but, and she's an oracle. Well, here's the story. It's it just kind of, we're kind of just story time right now. Uh, several years back, I don't know exactly how many, but maybe five, something like probably five to ten years ago, something like that. Um, this young woman, who now is now called Kandala, uh, she escaped from Tibet. So she's a recent refugee uh, from Tibet. She was raised, brought up there. Um, I know little, if anything, about her life in Tibet. I might have heard a little bit, but I don't remember right now. But she made her way down, like, I think almost all the refugees, made her way to Dharamsala. And His Holiness was giving a public teaching in Dharamsala. And this young woman uh, was in, uh, uh, in the midst of certainly hundreds of monks, nuns, and lay people uh, receiving the teachings, Tibetans, primarily overwhelmingly Tibetans. She was sitting there, and in the midst of the teaching, 
she started either speaking or singing in a very loud voice, right in the middle of the teaching. I mean, it was really odd, you know? And so they always have some kind of... Um, the bouncer is the wrong word. Um, men there who, if somebody is crazy, and it does happen occasionally, somebody's, or somebody's just misbehaving, they'll just escort them out. They don't do anything harmful, but they will get them out so they don't create a big disturbance. Well, this young lady was just... Oh, <laughs> and they thought, well, this woman has kind of lost it, you know, a bit crazy. So let's take her out, calm her down. Maybe she needs med medical care or what have you. So these two big guys came over and they just escorted her right out. And um, so the teachings went on. I think maybe the next day or so, there she is back again. And I think it, it, maybe both times, but the, certainly the second time, she started singing and it was like she, she was singing an aria. I mean, she was really belting it out, you know. And so come the heavies again and they're coming over. You know, she's, she's petite, she's about the size of Carissa. Uh, and also slender, you know, like, like that. And uh, these two big guys coming over, I mean, and she wasn't struggling or anything. She wasn't violent. She was nothing dangerous about her, but she was singing an aria in the middle of the Dalai Lama's teachings, you know, a bit distracting. So these two big guys came over to escort her out again, and then the Dalai Lama, then the Dalai Lama said, wait, stop. Let her go. Just everybody cool it. And because there's something special going on here. And he just let her sing. And then she finished. And then they checked her out. They checked her out, and he also consulted with um, another Lama of mine. I, I have the great privilege of calling him my Lama, Kalka Jesandambarimpache. This appears in the, um, in the film, Oracle, so you'll see it for yourself. Uh, and I do sometimes, you know, I get my wires crossed, but I, don't, I saw the film pretty recently. Uh, I don't think I'm confused on this point. But this woman was... Um, channeling something. And so they wanted to see, you know, who or what is she channeling? Very much part of the Buddhist worldview. So where is it coming from? Because this, she's not crazy, but she's not normal either, you know. <laughs> and so they check with Kalkaches and Dambarambuche, and he is, that's another whole story, but he is a Tibetan, very, very old now. I had the, the wonderful privilege of translating for him on his first trip to the, United, to the West, teaching. I have no idea why they chose me, but they asked me to come down to Southern California and interpret for him. He'd never taught anybody in the West, um, but he's the incarnation of the head lama of Mongolia. He is to Mongolia what the Dalai Lama is to Tibet. And he's a lay person. He has a couple of sons. Um, so this is a tangent, but His Holiness then consulted with, for whatever reason, consulted with him, would you please check out, do divinations or whatever you do, find out, What's up with this young woman? You know? And they consulted, and the conclusion came out that she is genuine oracle, and she's channeling, she's called a tema. She's a tema. She's channeling some of the wisdom of Panalamo, Sri Devi, uh, who is kind of a somewhat wrathful manifestation of Tara, and Tara being the manifestation and embodiment, a personification, an archetypal representation of Buddhist compassion. And so she is, more specifically, I think there are 12 dhamma, 12 like attendant goddesses that are the entourage. So we're deeply now in Tibetan Buddhism, into Vajrayana Buddhism. But many of the, the deities, the yidams, have entourages, deities, bodh bodhisattvas, devas, or devis in their entourage. And for the, in the case of Panalamo, 
as I recall, I believe it's 12 Dhamma. And this Kandala, this young woman, is channeling one of them. So indirectly cha channeling Panalamo. And Panalamo is the personal protector of the Dalai Lama, the Dharma protector, personal protector. Very strong relationship. So when this was determined, then everybody kind of backed off. We're not, ask her, not, we're gonna not ask, ask her to leave any longer. And so she has been consulted on occasion. And sometimes she is simply possessed, uh, just spontaneously, and then she will give messages, which will then make their way to the Dalai Lama, and that's incorporated in. But she's now considered part of the oracular family in Dharmsala. There's the state oracle, there's her, and then there's at least one other that you'll see in the film, if we can get it to you. Um, so I think it was someone here, was it? Who was it that said that the, the oracles often die around age 50? Somebody right over here. Mary, yes. Um, yeah, I don't doubt that. The, the, oracle, the state oracle that I knew back in the early, early 70s, I don't think he lived very long. And there have been a couple since then, I think, because that's 35 years ago. Um, I hope that's not, not the case for Kandalai. I hope she lives a very long life. So I'd heard about her, but I'd heard, and frankly... In, in at least some cases, perhaps many of them, the oracles, when they're not being possessed, are pretty ordinary. They're not great scholars. They're not big meditators. They may not meditate at all. They're just a chosen one who has made his or her body available for this such possession. And beside, when they're not being possessed, they live you know, ethical lives, but nothing special. But I'd heard that this Kandola was really quite special. Um... And I go, I've, I've been going to Dharmazala about every two years or so for quite a number of years now for the Mind on Life conferences, which I've served as interpreter with Tupton Jimba. So I heard once or twice, didn't make the time, it just didn't happen for me to go be able to see her. And then it was a year and a half ago, we had the last Mind on Life conference in Dharmazala. And um, my wife was there with me for that one. And the meeting went from Monday to Friday, and so Saturday was off, and then I think Saturday evening, then we took off going, heading back to Delhi. So Saturday morning was free, and I'd been wanting to meet this woman um, for some time, for some years, and my wife was intrigued, and so we sought her out. And so I checked around, checked around, where does she live, where does she live? It turned out that she lives in a room in Namgyal Monastery, which is, oh, it's a stone's throw from the hotel where we stayed. We stayed in the... Uh, uh, Chona, Chona House, Chona House, right across from the, the main temple, which is right across from the Dalai Lama's compound, and the Namgyal Monastery is right there. So she had a, she had a room there. She was, she was taken care of. And she would be there, uh, and she would be an oracle on call, basically. Um, so we learned that she was there, but we didn't know which room, and there's rather, rather a labyrinth of many, many rooms in Namgyal Monastery by now. And so we are out just kind of scoping around, and we... As we we're looking, looking around, say, anybody know where she is? We got some directions. Then we bumped into uh, Tupton Jimba's wife, Sophie. And Tupton Jimba has, for years now, been the primary interpreter of His Holiness. Uh, very dear friend. I've known him since he was a kid. So we have like a, almost a 40-year friendship. Um, so his wife, her best friend, another young woman, and then a Tibetan who they'd found uh, to interpret for them because they were wanted to meet with Kandula, and then right after that, go see Jadur Rinpoche, very, very fine lama, and receive a Tara empowerment from him. So we learned that we just kind of bumped into them, and it turned out we all wanted to see Kandula. So why don't we team up? So very quickly now, because we had a Tibetan with us, he knew exactly where she was. 
So this was in the morning, about 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so we found her room, and it was just knocked. And lo and behold, there she was. I mean, there was no line, there was no nothing. She just invited us right in. It was a bare room with one tanka, one Tibetan painting of Tara, white Tara as I recall, your white Tara quite surely, on the wall. And there she was just sitting on a bed, as Tibetans very often do. She has long hair. She is physically very beautiful. Uh, and she was wearing what looked pretty close to monastic robes, although she's not a nun, but long hair. Um, and she invited us in with the utmost graciousness and kindness, sweetness. And so we offered the kata, did kind of the ritual greeting. We sat down. I th and many people do this. She has kind of interview, not so much interview, but just kind of meeting darshan periods where people come in. She doesn't speak English, and there was no one there that spoke English. The Tibetan came along, but uh, she doesn't have a regular interpreter right there with her. So I think most people, when they have kind of a meeting like that, they just offer a kata, maybe receive a blessing, she smiles, and then they go and they bring in more people. So you have a darshan like that. But we sat down. There was nobody in line behind us. So it was um, my wife and five of us, the two, the two ladies, my wife and I, the two other ladies, my wife and I, and then the Tibetan. We sat down. And just sitting with her, there was a... She had a presence that I have almost never encountered in anyone. The closest one would be my own very revered Lama, Sakyadamala, who is about 75 years old. When she was young, well, to my mind, she is still incredibly beautiful at the age of 75. And when she was a young woman, by every standard, she would be gorgeous. By every standard. She was just breathtaking. Uh, that's another whole story. But, she, but she's beautiful in every sense of the term. Well, here is a young woman, again, physically very lovely. But um, I've seen a lot of beautiful women in my time, and that doesn't really impress me by itself. There was a presence about her that was, um, I have to say, quite not, not quite human. Uh, there was a lightness. It was almost just an embodiment of bliss. And so I wound up being our interpreter, speaking with her, and I asked her whether she'd be willing to any, share any words of Dharma with us, any advice she might give. And I gave a very brief introduction to myself and the others, uh, but almost nothing. And she says, oh, but I don't know Dharma. I'm sure you know Dharma much better than I do. And so look out when people say that. You know. <laughs> Be aware. And, and she said, no, I really have nothing. I don't really know much. I'm not a scholar or anything like that. I'm sure you know more like that. And I said, well, anything you'd offer, we'd really love to hear any words of wisdom, any words of guidance you might have to share. And went back and forth a little bit. And then it was like a dam broke. And then she just slipped into a stream of spontaneous teaching. And now I can say I've never heard teaching like that in my life. And I've had some pretty extraordinary teachers. And I've told you the names of a number of them. But the spontaneous flow of wisdom I mean, just sheer, flat-out, spontaneous, profound wisdom that it was utterly contemporary. I mean, she was so in tune with exactly where we are in history right now, the big Dharma scene globally and locally. She was absolutely immersed in Dzogchen because the words flowing out were very much in the flow of Dzogchen. But as she, as she would just be speaking, then just frequently there would just flow... It was, like this flow of laughter. It, it was, I don't know other, any other word than to say angelic. 
it was not even quite human, but it was just this lightness, sheer bliss, laughter that would come up out of nowhere. And it didn't, of course, never seemed silly. There was absolutely nothing silly about it. It was just sheer bliss, kind of my cup runneth over kind of thing. And then she'd go right back into the flow. And at the time, she could be very critical of some of the rigidity, the conservatism, the orthodoxy of, of the contemporary Buddhist tradition. And she says, many lamas say this, but I disagree with this. And then she'd go, and every point she made, it was just like right into my heart, like, oh, man, is that right? And it wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was, it was just like her, spo- her words spoke immediately to the heart. Uh, spontaneous, immediate, direct, utterly present, extraordinary wisdom and practical guidance. Um, I was, you can tell, very, very deeply moved by this. Um, and then it turned out I wasn't the only one. My wife was just wrapped, just totally totally focused, to- totally taken, enchanted, there's the word, enchanted, and so were Sophie, and I don't remember her friend's name, but the other woman, and the young Tibetan, youngish, maybe 35, 40, and so she spoke for maybe an hour or so, and it was utterly sublime Dharma teaching, and at the end, it was a tiny bit like, only a tiny bit like, uh, when Buddha was approaching his five disciples from afar, there are major differences here. They decided that they were above him because he'd turned away and he'd, he'd gone, got, gone soft, had dropped their ascetic practices. So they said, well, you know, he's going to have to earn our respect. Well, we certainly didn't have that. But as the Buddha approached the five, just by his sheer presence, they all rose with tremendous reverence. And everything they decided before just went out. And then they sat down and then they, you know, they received teachings and it was just went right in. And they achieved our hardship. Well, I don't know if any of the other four achieved arhatship. I certainly did not. Uh, but the parallel there is just that immediate faith. That's, I mean, there's so many differences, so I don't mean to give anything misleading, but spontaneous, immediate, and very deep faith. That was true. And frankly, I mean, as you might have known, I'm a little bit cynical on occasion when it comes to Dharma, with you know, modern Dharma and a lot, a lot of stuff, and skeptical and so forth. The core teaching I have very deep faith in, but a lot of stuff manifests in the modern world doesn't impress me. The word tukul, you might as well it doesn't, doesn't fill me with awe. When somebody said, some, somebody, somebody is a tukul, I said, well, cool, whatever. What you got, tukul? You know? But we're going to start from scratch here. You know, I'm not going to give you a big up ante because somebody calls you a tukul. I didn't even give it to the Dalai Lama. When I arrived in Dharamsala, I thought he was just a king. I thought he was a figurehead. I really, I didn't have any faith in it at all. I saw, I saw a photo. I arrived in, the, in Patankot and I saw a photo of him. I said, yeah, it looks like a young king, whatever. I want a real lama. <laughs> you know, one just meditated, spent time in a cave, you know. And so my faith in his holiness started from scratch. I did not come to Dharamsala with deep faith in him. And now I have faith in him like I can say nobody else on the world. So Kandala was like that. She impressed us all in that way. And without our, our consulting, we didn't palaver and anything like that. When she was finished, then I don't recall who was first. I just don't recall. But I know that one by one, we just came to her and said, please be my lama. I never do that. I never do that. But couldn't help it. And my wife, the same thing. She came and said, please be my lama. The two other two ladies, please be my lama. So...
as you can see, made quite an impression. I've invited her here to come and teach. Um, and she's agreed in principle. We just need to then work out logistics. I'm hoping she will come here. My, I, I've, I've tried to get my wife to come here, and she said, if Condola comes, then I'll come. <laughs> she won't come for me. I don't, I don't impress my wife that much, but <laughs> Condola really impressed her, and with good reason, with good reason. So she is, but she's one of those rare individuals. I mean, I don't know of any other. There must be others, but I don't know them. But on the one hand, she's a flat-out oracle. I mean, she is possessed. And when you see her possessed, if you see the film, she is possessed. You see, this is not, this is not Kandala. This is not the Kandala that we heard giving teachings from her own spontaneous wisdom. She was angelic. She was, she's a dakini. That's what Kandala means, dakini. She's a dakini. I mean, my own lama, Sakyadamala, appears to me as datik dakini. This woman appears to be as dakini. Everybody else I have to practice pure vision for. You know. But these two I don't. They just, they just appear to be absolutely pure. And unconditional compassion, warmth, kindness, bliss, joy, wisdom. They just appear that way. I don't have to try. Right? So on the one hand, she's an oracle. But when she's not in her oracle job, she's a very, very sincere practitioner. She is just meditating, practicing Dharma all the time. So she's really quite extraordinary. So if you have a chance to make a connection with, with Kandula, I would encourage it. Okay, that's Kandula. Okay. Anything from the floor? We have 20 minutes or so. There are more questions here, but any loose ends? Yes. Kandola, K-H-A-N-D-R-O. Kando. Kando means Dakini in Tibetan. Literally means a sky goer, somebody who goes in the sky. And La is just the honorific. Alan La, Brett La, and so forth and so on. Kandola. Um, I've heard they also call her Tsirigma. Yes, Tsirigma is, Tsirigma is, uh, can I get this right? I think Tsirigma is the name of the Tema, the name of the, the goddess in the entourage of Panorama. The name of that goddess is uh, Tsirigma. Tsirigma. And what did you say? Yeah. Tsirigma. Yeah, which means long-lived one. Uh, I'm almost certain this is true, that there are 12 goddesses in that entourage. One of them is called Tsirigma, and she is considered to be the emanation, the oracle, the channel for Tsirigma. Yeah, like that. Yeah, so may, may it be so. May she have a long life, because she's really a jewel. And some, I, I was in New Zealand. I had a wonderful experience in New Zealand what was it, last year. There I met a, a New Zealand woman who has a great faith and just a yeah, very strong pull to for, to Atisha, the great 11th century Indian master. And of course, it's widely known as biography that he went way off to Indonesia, to Serlingba, to receive teachings on Bodhicitta. And it was something, what was it, 11, 13-month voyage? What was it, 11 or 13? Something like that, but a long voyage. But he went way off to Indonesia, and this is so a thousand years ago, to receive Mahayana teachings. Okay, so Mahayana Buddhism obviously spread quite far east. And so there's an interest among a small but influential group of people to find out where was that great Lama Serlingba uh, in Indonesia that was, and bear in mind, Atisha left India. I mean, India, Dharma was still flourishing pretty well in the 11th century. He left all the Lamas, all the Gurus of India behind and headed way off to Indonesia to get teachings on Bodhicitta. You know, well, this Serlingba must have been pretty something, pretty extraordinary, and Atisha spent quite a bit of time with him, received a lot of teaching from him. So there's been some curiosity um, 
where was this Saralingba? Where did exactly where? What among the Indonesia, that whole area, all those islands, where did he go? And so maybe a year or two, two, probably two years ago or so, then a delegation was sent because they found some area they thought might be the place. And they sent someone from the, a, a monk who I know from the Dalai Lama's private office, one or two monks, and they also sent Tsirima or Kandola um, for her intuitive ability. And they all headed off there. And then this person I met, the woman I met in New Zealand, she was there also. And they asked her to be there just to pick up Atisha vibe and to see whether, you know, just intuitively. And she came out and said, emphatically not, he wasn't here. He might have passed through, but this is not where he stayed. So she's an extraordinary being, really extraordinary. I, I've never met anybody quite like her. Oh, tell me. Yeah, we need the microphone. Well, it's something very brief, but um, she was 19, I guess, when she was in Tibet, and she was very not knowing what to do. I remember now. Go carry. Yeah, you just triggered my memory. Now carry on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she was uh, circumambulating the stupa. And there was a guy that show, sh suddenly showed up to her and gave her money, uh -huh. and uh, out of nothing. Yeah. And so, I guess that's how she. And he told her that she should go to see the Dalai Lama and uh -huh. and ask her, and because there that she would know what to do when when she got there yeah. with him. Yeah. So that's how she got to Dharamsala. Uh -huh. I don't know how. Actually, the whole trip went, but uh -huh. I do know that that's so that, what that, happened. That's it, yeah? Yeah. I can add then one other segment, because I, I now remember it now that as soon as you started speaking, then some neuron fired or something <laughs> happened, or my substrate, whatever. Um, a story I heard, I think it was in the, the Jokang, the major temple in Lhasa, uh, that she was there, and she started, again, saying in a very loud voice, something like, long live the Dalai Lama, praises to the Dalai Lama, and so forth. You know, and I think, she, I think you're right, like 19, 20 years old or something like that. But really loud and prostrate, you know, singing praises to the Dalai Lama. And, and if, you, if you've been to the Barkor, the, this old region of Plaza, well, you may as well just be stepping into a concentration camp because there are video cameras everywhere, there's secret service everywhere, it's spies everywhere. It's the hottest place in all of Tibet. I mean, it's in, under intense scrutiny. You do anything there, and they're just going to take you away, because they consider that's kind of like the center of the atom bomb. If things explode there, it'll, it'll you know, blow up everything. So here's this young woman right by the main cathedral in the Barkor, in Lhasa, and doing these things. And so immediately the secret police came in and snatched her. But then they saw, oh, the woman's crazy. And then they released her. You know, they thought she's crazy. And so then, no problem. They, you know, they don't want to imprison crazy people. Yeah. Yeah. She is something as a definitely a true statement. Yeah. Oh, lasso. Anything else from the group? There's always questions here. We have a bit of time, or shall I read the next one here? Okay, I'll read one anyway. Here's a line from Sonkaba's Lines of Experience. If you do not consider, whoops, 
If you do not make an effort to think about the true suffering, about true sufferings and their drawbacks, you will not properly develop a keen interest to work for liberation. So if you're not if you're not aware of the first noble truth, then you'll not develop any aspiration to be free of the second one. If you do not consider the stages whereby true origin, origins of the suffering take place and keep, keep in cyclic existence, you'll not know the means for cutting the root of this vicious circle. So it's a good translation. All those Therefore, you should cherish ex ex exuding total disgust and renunciation of such existence by knowing which factors bind you to its wheel. I, the yogi of practice like, this, like that, you who also seek liberation, please cultivate yourself in the same way. Oh, but this is good, standard, very standard, excellent core teachings on renunciation, and that is ruminating on the reality of suffering and the sources of suffering. Uh, my teacher, Gyatran, I mean, all of my teachers emphasize this. Gyatran Abhiji comes back and just hammers it in that if you don't really reflect upon the reality of suffering, and not just, oh, that was a rotten day, but blatant suffering, suffering of change, and then the deepest level, if, you're not really re if you don't get that, if you don't really get it, and then trace it to the source, what are the true causes of suffering? Because virtually anything can catalyze suffering. You know, a rain shower can catalyze suffering. Anything can catalyze suffering. But if you don't really reflect deeply on the whole bandwidth of suffering to which we're vulnerable and the true causes of suffering, then authentic rena renunciation will not arise. And I think that's just flat out true. Why would it? Because if, when, if it goes any more shallow, if it doesn't go right to the depths any more shallow, then we'll just take the, the root of suffering as far as we've gone, but not all the way, and then that will not give rise to the aspiration for liberation. It'll give rise to an aspiration for a new girlfriend, or a new job, or some new place to live, or just some modification of samsara, that I'm in the wrong place in samsara, but I need to move to a better neighborhood, you know, or I need an extreme makeover, or I need to lose 30 pounds, or I need to dye my hair, or something, I just need to modify samsara. And it's only with thoroughgoing, total disillusionment with samsara that it will never, ever, ever, in all of eternity, never provide satisfaction, never be satisfying, and never, can never be. Only when you realize that, then there's only one thing left. When samsara has been a total failure, then dharma is the only thing left. And that's why if you don't have dharma, and you, you're even approaching that awareness that, that, that samsara, what is samsara? Samsara is leading a life during which your mind is still dominated by mental afflictions or prone to them. And thinking, but that's okay, I can still find happiness because she's such a great woman or that's such a great job or I'm getting so much recognition, I'm so famous, I'm so healthy, I'm so, therefore I can still find happiness even though my mind is still subject to mental afflictions. Well, dream on, you know. So when one becomes completely, how do you, wakes up from that dream and see there is no possibility for genuine satisfaction. This is zero. Not even a tiny bit. Uh, then either you become massively depressed, maybe suicidally so, and maybe you get massive medication for the rest of your life, and you're if you have a psychologist, psychiatrist who doesn't understand dharma, they say, well, you probably have some major chemical imbalance in your brain, you know, because after all, all mental problems are chemical problems in the brain, according to some. Uh, then you're really out of luck. So this is why I think as we reflect on suffering, the reality of suffering, 
that it is so, so important that as we reflect upon that and gain some deeper insight, we better have a balancing act here. Because if we go overboard, if we really get deep insight into being disillusioned with samsara, but have no comparable degree of confidence, hope, faith, trust, that in fact there's a way out of suffering, we'll just be depressed. And then we lose. Then we can't, even, we can't enjoy ice cream and we have no path to liberation either. Ice cream just being the symbol of samsaric pleasures. We can't really enjoy them. Not really. But you have no alternatives. So then you're really screwed. You can't enjoy whatever samsara has to dish up and you have no alternatives. So that's a pretty sad situation. So therefore the balance is really important. Now in Tibet, it was easier in a way. Because, you know, for the last centuries... There were monasteries everywhere, you know? Monks everywhere, nuns everywhere, yogis, not everywhere, but, you know, loosely populated. They were pretty much everywhere. And so you had plenty of examples of people who found tremendously deep sense of well-being, bliss, extraordinary wisdom, paranormal abilities, and so forth. So you had to be just kind of stupid or, you know, keep your head, head down in a hole not to be aware that there was really a path to liberation. So when, you, when you're surrounded by that, all I have to do is keep your eyes open. I mean, I've met, you know, even living in Dharamsala, a refugee community, where they'd all, almost all of them had been through trauma to get there. Hardly any of them have had an easy little walk out of Tibet. Almost all of them had tremendous problems, tragedy. Even there, these are the happiest people I'd ever met. And it was a refugee community, for heaven's sakes, you know? And so, <clears throat> when you're raised in that, then you don't really need to have a big imagination to have very deep faith in Dharma. Geshe Naptan, when he was 19, so he wasn't a Geshe yet, obviously, but when he was 19, no, a couple of years earlier, maybe 17, it's in his life story, which I wrote, um, there he was, healthy, probably good-looking young man, um, on a nice, prosperous ranch, you know, out in eastern Tibet, cow like, like Wyoming or Montana, you know, really wild and... He had a brother. When he described his childhood, it really reminded me of Bonanza, you know, and Haas and Little Joe, and you know, it really reminded me of that, you know, because I, I think his mother had passed away young. So it was the father, and I think he was Adam, you know, and then there was Haas and Little Joe, remember? Um, it was just so much like that. It was just that rugged, outdoor, cowboy, very cowboy, Except for instead of cattle, they had yaks, you know, they had yak, sheep, and goat. And so there he was, and a very bright young man, and his job, you know, in other words, he's set. I mean, in, in traditional, but there was no anxiety about, oh, well, I make a living. Hey, what's, why would you not make a living? You're living on a good ranch here. You got your yaks, what more do you want, you know? And so he was set, but the age of set, what happened at the age of 17? or so, very close to 17, was a caravan of monks, a caravan, a, a caravan of monks passed through town. And they were on their way to central Tibet. That was a major pilgrimage. And this is about two months' journey, two to three months' journey away from Lhasa. And he saw these monks just passing through town on the way to Lhasa, probably to have a meeting with His Holiness, visit the sacred spots there and so forth, maybe even to study. And this is what he told me. At the age of 17, he said, there is simply a serenity 
a peacefulness, a goodness about these monks that so impressed me that I thought, there's no way I'm going to find what they have by just being a ranch hand and eventually getting, taking over the ranch. Not going to happen. So just it was seeing the example, though. It wasn't even seeing a great lama. He didn't even say what monk it was. It was just the monks. But there was really a serenity about them, a peacefulness, a goodness, kindness. And he thought, whatever they got, that's what I want. So he went to his dad. He went to his dad and said, Dad, I want to become a monk. And uh, Dadinrapten was his name at that time. It was his given name. Dadinrapten had an older brother. I think, I think he was older. So in other words, in principle, it'd be okay. The older brother can take care of the ranch, and Dadinrapten could head off. But Dadinrapten was very, very bright, and his brother wasn't. Not that, you know, not that sharp. And his father was very attached to him. Really attached to him. That happens. Yeah. And so his father said, well... That's a really good idea, but you're a bit young, and not this year, you know. Cool it. Hoping that this will, you know, the monks will leave and he'll forget about it. You know. And by the way, there's this young lady over here, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so a year went by, so he's 18, and his father, his father said, come back to me in a year. If you're still serious, come back in a year. We can talk it over in a year. So a year went by, came to his father and said, Dad, I really want to really go. Where those monks are going, I want to go. I want to go to Lhasa. I want to become a monk, get a real education. And the father once again told him, because well, his father, they're all pretty much all Buddhist. You know? And so his father said, well, that's a really good idea, but not yet. It's not a, not a good time. Uh, ask me again next year. So lo and behold, next year, he's still, he's got to be in his bonnet. You know, he's, he's got an idea here. And it comes to his dad. And in fact, a caravan, another caravan's coming through town. And in the caravan is an uncle, one of his uncles, I think one of his dad's brothers, is, part, is a member of the caravan because they would, this, was, this is the Wild West. And whether you're monks or whether you're merchants, the safest way to get from Kham and to go to central Tibet is in a caravan because there are bandits. It's the Wild West. It really is the Wild West. And you can be shot up, you can be, you know, and so that was a safe way to go. Now, monks would be in less danger because they don't usually have much, but sometimes they were also rich monks and the bandits were not too picky. Yeah. So this time he's even got an uncle. And so he goes to his father. Now he's 19. He said, Dad, I, I really, really want to go and now I've got an uncle here. I can join him. I can be kind of his servant and you know, attend to him so maybe he'll give me food and I really want to go. Can I go? Can I go? Huh? huh? You know? And his father said, Ah, um, oh, it's a really good idea, but... I don't think this is a good year. You know, ask me next year. We can talk about it, but not this year. And then Dajan Rapton told me, uh, so Geshe Rapton told me that then he knew, now he's 19, he said, then he knew, he's never going to let me go. Never going to let me go. He, he, he loves me too much, his, but love as in, he's atta too attached. Never going to let me go. And I've got to go. So, what to do? Because he loves his father. Father loves him, but he can't stay. There's just, he has no heart to stay. So he thought, what to do? He said, and then he came up with a plan. He's smart. He's a very smart man. So he thought, okay, I'll let the caravan leave. They're heading out west to Hasa. I'll let them leave. Then my father's guard will be down. He won't think that I'm going to pull a fast one. So let them leave. 
And so I'll pretend like I've acquiesced. I've gone along with him. And so the caravan took off. Father probably, ha, got a, I got him for another year anyway. So the caravan has gone a day or two. Vanished. Meanwhile, Dadan Upton is thinking, okay, here's my plan. And so he waits until everybody's asleep. But, be, and, but before then, he goes to his horse, because he's a cowboy. And he goes to his horse and wraps his horse's hoofs in cloth. And then he stashes um, some just basic things he needs. I think, I, I, I was really thinking like a sombrero and sarape. sarape. <laughs> I don't think it was quite right, but you know what he needed. Uh, like a bedroll and just basic basics that he needed. Because I'm just, I can't help but think of Bonanza and, you know, you know, the Wild West, because it's so reminiscent. So he stashed these. He stashed these, and I think probably over by the horse, waited until everybody was, was sleeping. And then he quietly slipped out of the house and got his bundle and then quietly led his horse off with the tippy-toe, you know, padded hoofs, got him away from the house, and then hopped on his horse and zipped after the caravan. Of course, he's a single horseman, so he can catch up with that caravan. They're plodding along more slowly. And before long, he catches up with them. And he finds his uncle, because he's got nothing. I mean, he's, he's a young guy. He's got nothing except for his pancho, his horse. You know? <laughs> and he comes to his uncle and said, please, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be your servant for the whole trip. It's a two-month two trip uh, on a horseback. I'll be your servant. Please provide me with food so I can get to Laza. I want to go there and become monk. And uh, I've got to go. So the uncle says, okay, it's okay. And so Dadanraptan then beds down in his uncle's tent. It was either that night or the next night, it's at nighttime, Dadanraptan's in the, inside the tent and then he hears a horseman coming. He hears the horse coming closer and closer. And his uncle's outside. And then he hears his dad's voice. And he slips out of the tent immediately to just sneak off into the dark, to disappear. And then his dad comes in, and, and his dad, then he meets with his uncle. They're brothers. And they're sitting down and... Of course, everything is obvious. The, the uncle's not going to lie to his own brother. Yes, your son is here. Uh, I thought maybe you had your permission, da-da-da-da. And so they sat down. And while they're speaking, then the son, Dadan Rapting, comes over, creeps out of the bushes so, he's with, so he can hear them. But he's still in the dark, so they, they don't know he's there. And he, he wants to listen. What are they saying? What are they saying? What's my dad saying? Because uh, he's just terrified his dad's going to get him, that his uncle's going to turn him in, and his dad's going to take him back. And he can't stand it. He can't stand it. You know. And so he hears them talking. And the two men, you know, talking about their, their son, their nephew. And finally his dad, you know, when he really gets the whole picture, he says, well, I know there's nothing I can do. I can't keep him. If he really wants to become a monk, if he really wants to go to Lhasa, get a good education and all of that, I can't keep him. I, I can't hold him back. So, let him know that he has my blessing. And the son hears this, and he comes out of the dark. 
raises his father and gets his blessing. And he never saw him again. Don't think so. Because that was often the case. It was a long, long trip. Yeah. So that's renunciation. That's renunciation. Okay? Oh, not so.